welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Kevin Howell, and he'll be answering your questions on Great Smoky Mountains fly fishing. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Kevin a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you share our podcast. When you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you got a moment, do it while you're listening to the show tonight. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is a property from Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses, Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Kevin Howell about Great Smoky Mountains fly fishing. Whether you want to catch your first permit in Belize, tame a giant tarpon in the Florida Keys, or wrestle a mid-bright Atlantic salmon in eastern Canada, Gills Fly Fishing International well-traveled booking team has the knowledge to make it happen. They consider trust to be the single most important aspect of their work. They only book locations that they know, meaning proven operations providing the right mix of great fishing, comfortable accommodation, and high integrity. Get in touch today to start planning your next fly fishing adventure. Visit flyfishinginternational.com or call them at 780-665-4943. Again, that's flyfishinginternational.com or call them at 780-665-4943. Before we introduce Kevin, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Kevin's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Kevin's latest book, Favorite Flies for the Great Smoky Mountains, 50 Essential Patterns from Local Experts. And this is courtesy of Stackpole Books. If you ever want to see more about Stackpole Books and what they have to offer, go to stackpolebooks.com. Now, here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question is going to be something that Kevin and I talk about during the show, and you must submit your answer on the homepage, right in the text box on our homepage. So this is the same place that you can ask questions during the show. Listen closely. Take some notes. Use your best typing skills when the time comes, and hopefully you'll win Kevin's book, Favorite Flies for the Great Smoky Mountain. Our guest tonight is Kevin Howell. While growing up, Kevin was influenced by his father, uncle, and grandfather, who were all accomplished fly fishers. In 1997, Kevin took a job as manager of Davidson River Outfitters. He was also helping his father run Dwight and Don's custom tackle. After his father passed away in 1998, Kevin took over the operation of Dwight and Don's custom tackle while remaining the manager at Davidson River Outfitters. 
In 2000, Kevin purchased Davidson River Outfitters and combined the operation of the two businesses. Kevin has been guiding the streams of Western North Carolina since the late 80s and knows most of the fish on a first-name basis. While trout fishing has a special place in his heart, Kevin spends the majority of his year fishing and guiding for smallmouth bass. Kevin is also a world-renowned fly tire and is currently one of the signature fly designers for Montana Fly Company. Kevin's patterns have been featured in numerous magazines, including Fly Fisher, Eastern Fly Fishing, Fish and Fly, and Fly Fisher magazines. In addition to fly tying, Kevin is a maker, rod builder, and lure designer. Kevin has been featured on Trout Unlimited Television, Fly Fishing America, the three-day weekend on Home and Garden Television Festival. Kevin has also authored the Southeast Fly Guide, a hatchbook designed to help southern trout anglers understand what flies to use when. He also completed the book Tying and Fishing South Appalachian Trout Flies, which his father had started before he passed away in 1998. Kevin was a contributing author to the 50 Best Tailwaters in America, 25 Best National Parks to Fly Fish, and co-authored the 50 Best Places to Fly Fish Southeast. Kevin's latest book, Favorite Flies for the Great Smoky Mountains, was just released by Stackpole. Kevin, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thanks for having me on, Roger. Yeah, good to have you. Good to have you. Well, we got lots of, lots of water to cover tonight, so to speak. And I'm anxious to get going here. Now, you just published your book, Favorite Flies for the Great Smoky Mountains. Tell us how that book came about. Uh, well, I had pitched the idea of a, a book of history of the flies of the Southern Appalachians to the guys at Stackpole a number of years ago and and had some of the work done on it. And then uh, Jay came to me back last year, uh, about a year ago at this time, and said, hey, we we think we want to do this book, and um, and we want you to author it, and we're going to do a, a series of them. You know, I'm sure you've seen the other series and uh, right. for Pennsylvania and Colorado and Yellowstone. And, and so I agreed to do it and took the lead on it and got it to press, and Jay and them did a, a wonderful job of making me sound halfway decent instead of the <laughs> old country fisherman I am. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Well, you covered uh, 50 patterns in that book. How did you go about selecting those patterns? Well, that was the hardest part for me is uh, Jay said, you know, we are we want these books to kind of look alike. We want some old patterns. We want some new patterns. We want some local stuff, some national stuff, and so I sat down and wrote a list, and I called him, and I said, well, Jay, it can't be 50 patterns. It's got to be 150 patterns, and, and he <laughs> said, nope, you've got X number of pages, and then 50 patterns, so uh, I really tried to, to whittle down to what I felt were the core flies of history, and then the core flies of what we know as guides today catch a lot of fish in the Smokies. Right, right, right. Well, we'll talk about a lot of those, or I mean, not a lot of them, some of them anyways tonight. Can't talk about all 50, but uh, we'll try to mix those in as we go through the night. We're also going to talk about some of the, the waters that you fish there with your guide service and uh, try to give some people some insight into, you know, what you can fish in that area. Now, geographically, what did the uh, the book cover as far as the flies? You, you kind of, it's more than just like the park or anything like that, right? Yeah, we're a little bit outside of the park. If you look at the geography of the Great Smoky Mountains, that same geography exists from 
right around Elizabethan, Tennessee, south to North Georgia, east to probably the Morganton, North Carolina area, the, the edge of the escarpment there, and then almost to Knoxville. So that little polygon or whatever, if you wanted to draw it on the on the mountain of North Carolina, Tennessee, and very northeast Georgia and stuff, that's the geography and the geographical area that I use to base all these patterns. Okay, okay. And can you kind of, you know, when we're talking about the Smoky Mountains, can you kind of give us an idea of the different types of fisheries that are there? I mean, I know it's well known for those tiny little streams way up in the mountains, but there's there's more to it than that, right? Can you kind of explain the different options people have to fish sure. in that area? Sure. Like you said, it's, everybody says Smoky Mountain and mountain trout fishing, and you're thinking of small streams and plunge pools, and, and there are thousands and thousands of miles of that. But you also have the larger rivers. You have the Tuckasegee River, the French Broad System, the Davidson, the Nantahala, the Oconalefti System, which is actually in the park. All those systems are would equal the size of the Madison or, or some of those streams out west. But those, yeah. those streams will equal out west. And so you have the opportunity to fish very, very varied streams from, you know, streams that are 150 feet wide to streams that are 10 feet wide. And anything in elevation from 2,000 feet to 6,000 feet. So a lot of opportunity there for different fishing abilities. You know, I see people come through my shop all the time that just fish dry flies. I have other guys that are just Euro nymphers. I have some guys that all they want to do is throw streamers. So we see a mix of everything. And depending on what you want to do, I might say, you know, try this river or try that river. It's going to be better suited for, for that technique. But really in this geographical area, you can fish trout fish any way you want to trout fish. Okay. All right. Well, great. Now, we're not only fishing. Well, let me back up here a second. When I'm every time I look at the, the pictures, and I've never fished the Smoky Mountains, but every time I look at these pictures, I see this just lush forest. You know, beautiful trees and bushes and so forth. Is that pretty uh, typical, Kevin? Of all that area? That's very typical of this area, and. Part of the reason for that is that the mountain range, the Black Mountains and the Unicoi Mountains and all the, the different mountain ranges right here, the balsams, they are part of the uh, Blue Ridge Escarpment. And in as little as two miles in places, that escarpment may drop from 5,000 feet to, to 1,500 or 2,000 feet. And... What happens is you have all that warm air coming up out of South Carolina, hits the mountains, comes up the face of the mountain, and then the orthographic lift makes, you know, produces rainfall. And we're really a deciduous rainforest and average about 80 inches of rainfall a year, which provides the great trout fishing here and all that green, lush vegetation on the side, especially the rhododendrons. And if you're not familiar with fishing with rhododendrons, we call them mountain fly traps because <laughs> as you're casting, they just seem to kind of suck your fly right into it and not let go. <laughs> yeah, it's probably, you know, they always say, uh, you know, like when you're, your car, well, you probably don't have this problem there with snow, but, 
you know, if you're skidding in your car, you want to point the car towards where you want to go, not to where, you know, or something like that. Anyway, maybe the pretty flowers just makes our cask go right into the bushes in the same way. But anyway, sure, that, 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 that's that is always the one you don't see behind you that gets you. <laughs> oh, that, that one. Okay. <laughs> They're all over. They're all over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it just looks so good. Now, do, do the heavy rains that you get, does that affect fishing there uh, adversely? So, in other words? Um, it can at times. You know, when we get adversely affected by the rains, like last year we had a tropical storm. By the time we got here, it was Tropical Depression Fred came over and dropped 27 inches of rain in about a 20-hour period. And, you know, that blew the fishing out. It flushed the rivers out, everything, for three or four days. But usually we get an inch of rainfall at a time or a half an inch. You know, you count on that every afternoon you get a thunderstorm and it's going to dump a half inch of rain. And it may make the river tea-colored for an hour or two, and then it'll clear right back up. But really that tea-color is some of the, the best fishing of the, the year. It's when it gets that 20 inches of rain and it gets red mud and rolls for three days. That's when the fish is no good. Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. So what makes these waters so good for trout fishing? They're very, very well oxygenated. They're very high gradient, so a lot of turbidity and broken white water, which adds oxygen back into it. And like I said, you're getting most of the time in the Smokies and, and on the edge of the escarpment, you're getting a, an afternoon rain shower every afternoon in the summertime, which keeps that, that uh, river system cool and fresh and keeps the trout happy. Now, when you, when you get a summer that's, that's drier than most, then the, the trout fishing is tough for the summer because it does get warm and low and, and okay. the fish get stressed. But more often than not, you can fish all summer long. Now, what other than, well, I'd like to know what kind of trout species are available there to fish for, and also what other types of fish are available in that area if one were to come there to fly fish. So in our immediate area, um, we have brown, rainbow, and brook trout. Brook trout is the only true native trout to our area, and we have a mix of true southern strain brook trout, which... A true southern strain brook trout is going to be a monster is eight inches, and he's found you know above 4,500 feet and above some type of a a barrier to keep the browns and the rainbows and the non-native brooks out. And then we also have an occasional tiger trout that'll happen in real life, but there are some other places that have some stocked tiger trout here or there, but. Primarily, uh, it's uh, brown rainbows and brook trout. Okay. And then outside of the outside of the trout, we um, have smallmouth and largemouth bass. We have muskie. And we have all the different carp species, panfish, bluegill, and we have some of the rivers will have striped bass and river sauger or walleye in them as well. Now, does the Davidson or the Pesk, uh Takasigi, am I saying that right? Takasigi. Takasigi. Yep. Takasigi. Those rivers uh, have any of the warm water species, or are those strictly trout? So the the Davison will it flows into the French Broad, and occasionally you will catch one odd smallmouth or 
we've caught one or two odd musky here or there over the years, but they're very, very seldom. Do you hear or see that? And the Tuckaseegee is predominantly trout until you get to the lower ends of it, and uh, then you'll find some walleyes that come in out of Lake Fontana to spawn in the early spring, and you'll find some smallmouth in that lower stretch as well. Okay, okay. All right, time to take a quick break here, Kevin. Just hang tight. We'll be right back, and we'll talk more about the Great Smoky Mountains fly fishing. Okay. Muskie Town is so much more than a muskie fly shop. Whether you're a muskie fly fishing guide, an experienced muskie hunter, or just getting into predators on the fly, wherever your life's adventures take you, Muskie Town's proven lineup helps you be more successful on the water. They have rods, reels, lines, flies for muskie, pike, and bass. Most of their flies are tied in-house, and they fish them at every possible opportunity so they know what works, why it works, and exactly what you need to put big fish in the net. Sit back, relax, enjoy legendary fly shop service, and please let them know there's ever anything that they can help you with. Next time you think of Muskie, go to Muskytown. That's muskytown.com, or call them at 763-312-6012. That's muskytown.com, 763-312-6012. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Kevin Howell about Great Smoky Mountains fly fishing. If you would like to ask Kevin a question, just go to our homepage, fill out that form, send it in, and we'll see if we can't get it answered. All right, Kevin. Jason Stacy wrote in from Kentucky, and he was asking, when is your favorite time of year to fish the Smoky Mountains? My favorite time of the year is from, well, I have two. I'd say they're equal in my opinion, but from mid-February through the end of April and then again from mid-October through till Thanksgiving, those are my my favorite times of the year to be in the streams around here. Okay. And you mentioned earlier uh, kind of tough fishing in the summer. I read, I think, somewhere on your website that one of the rivers you I don't know if it was the Davidson or which one it was, you were saying you, you actually shut down fishing on that during the, the summer months. Uh, can you tell us sure. more about Yeah. Yeah, so... What we do, we've begged our wildlife commission for years to, to get a, an emergency stream closure for the water temperatures to, to save the trout, and um, they've been reluctant to do that for a number of reasons, and, and some are, are good reasons. But what we do is once that water temperature hits 70 degrees, we have some private access stuff that we manage, so we shut down all the trout fishing on that, and then we stop running guided trout trips on the streams that reach that temperature, we go up higher to where the water's, you know, low 60s to high 50s once you get up off the parkway and 5,000, 6,000 feet. And then it's uh, easier on the fish up at that, those elevations, Correct. right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. And normally I would ask you, and I kind of forgot, so I'm going to ask you now what's going on in your fly fishing world. So, Tell us a little bit about your business there and, you know, where we can find you on the website and what all do you have going around fly fishing down in the southeast? Sure. So, um, you know, we're we're a full-service shop. We run um, about 18 guides out of my shop that cover pretty much all of western North Carolina and a little bit of eastern Tennessee. We do custom rod building, custom fly tying, have a full selection of fly tying equipment, all that kind of stuff. Do a lot of international travel to Argentina 
especially into the Bahamas. I was part owner in a lodge in Argentina for a number of years. I do that as well. Host trips down there, and um, you can find us at DavidsonFlyFishing.com, and feel free to call or email, and we'll be glad to help. Okay, great, great. Well, thanks for sharing that. All right, Gary Kaufman, North Carolina, wrote in, and he says, do you have or can you recommend maps for the blue lines in the Smokies? I don't know what that means, but can you explain that? And do you have any maps for that? Sure. So the blue lines would be the small, unnamed or undesignated streams, you know, high in the Smokies. They'd be tributaries to the larger creeks. Okay. And I don't have a good map for that. The, what we use to find stuff is either the old USGS quadrangles um, are my favorite. You, they're very detailed. And then um, I'll overlay that or, or use that resource in conjunction with a good trail map so I can figure out the, the best way in and out of some of the streams. Okay. Yeah, that's great. I know what were those um, those books. I know a lot of people use those. Oh, they used to have the Dorme Atlas and Gazetteers. Yeah, Gazetteers. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. I know a lot of people use those as well. Yeah. Well, good, good. So let's talk a little bit about the Davidson River because that's some of your home waters there that you fish and guide on regularly. Tell us where that is and how you, you would get there. So we're right outside the town of Brevard, North Carolina. We're probably 30 miles southwest of the town of Asheville, which everybody can recognize. And, you know, to get here, you can either fly into Asheville if you're coming from a long ways away or drive in, you know, all the interstates intersect here. And we're we're exactly 13 miles from the Asheville airport um, to the shop door, which is on the banks of the Davidson River. So you can literally step right off the plane and right into the river in a matter of 25 minutes. Okay. Okay. And... How long is this fishery, and what kind of fishery is it? Is it a tailwater, so freestone? Well, it's a freestone stream. It, it starts as a spring and two little two little tributaries real high up in the Balsam Mountains, um, Laurel Branch and Daniels Creek, and they come together to form the Davison River. Once they come together, you have about 13 miles of river that flows through Pisgah National Forest that is public access all the way down to my shop. My shop sits right at the Forest Service boundary. And then there was an old paper mill that that controlled the old, the last three miles of the river. It was all private and controlled by the paper mill. And we have gone in and restored the stream and are doing work to try and rehabilitate it and all that. So we have a lease on it, and we guide down there some. So it is a private pay-to-play fishery for that last three miles, but we're using all that money to help, you know, reconstruct, rebuild, and rehabilitate the lower three miles that were just totally destroyed by a paper mill for 100 years. Now, where is your, I'm looking at the map there, where is your shop in relationship to, I see the the two roadways, Biscoff so Highway. Yeah, where those two roadways meet, uh, my shop is right on the, the left side of, It'd be on the southwest side of the intersection there. And, um, oh, okay. We butt right up to the Pisgah National Forest. Okay. So is that is the Davidson then fishable all the way up to the headwaters, basically, or what parts do you, you guide on? 
it is fishable until it gets to small that you're probably going to chicken out of fishing it before the, the fish chicken out of going in it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, pretty bad bushwhacking, I'm taking it. Yes, the very, the very, very upper end is pretty, pretty laurelled over and a lot of crawling. It doesn't take you long to hit retreat on that. But, okay. Okay. Yeah, thir- um, thirteen miles of really good, easy access public trout stream. Is that uh, wade fishing, or is any of it floatable? It's all wade fishing. Um, you know, at its deepest in a really deep plunge pool hole, it may be over your head deep, but most of it is shin deep or or shallower, and it's only maybe 40 feet wide or so with a lot of shoals that are only inches deep. Okay, okay. And the topography of the land around there, what's it look like? So the Davidson comes down, I'd say the upper five miles of the river are very plunge pooly, just typical mountain fishing, your nice green vegetation with a, a pool, a drop, a pool, a drop, and then once you get down to the valley floor at about 27, 2800 feet. Um, you'll get a really long, flat pool with a long shoal with another long, flat pool. And those pools are have been known for years for their sulfur hatches. And we used to have green drakes, and the green drake fishery was phenomenal in the Davidson. And that got destroyed by a flood a, a number of years ago. It washed all the silt and the the insects out, and they just haven't reappeared yet. They haven't come back. Okay, okay. Not, not uh, the, the drakes haven't. The mayflies, right. the caddisflies, all that have have survived or have reappeared, but the green drakes just have not made it back yet. So you've got the mayflies, the caddis, the midges. I'm assuming. Um, yes, we got. What? Yeah, everything. Yet little winter stones. Like right now is a 55 degree day today, and we had little winter stones and blueing olives coming off. Um, you can have okay. dry fly fish in the, in the middle of January. So. Wow, wow, nice. Yeah, and comfortable, 55, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was 20 here today in Colorado where I'm <laughs> so, And I thought that was pretty warm. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, what kind of fish are in, this, in the Davidson in this area? It's predominantly the upper 13 miles are all uh, wild self-reproducing population of brown and rainbow trout. You'll catch a brook trout once in a blue moon that that washes in from a feeder stream somewhere, maybe Looking Glass Creek or Avery Creek, comes out of the head of that or something and ends up in there. And then you have about a two-mile section to where the campground is at, and that is hatchery-supported, so they do stock it a little bit right there at the campground so the campers can catch fish and have them for dinner or whatever. And then you come out of the National Forest, and you're at my shop and on the to private access water at that point. All right, down below. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay, Mark in uh, Austin, Texas, wants to know what rod weights and fly lines you'd recommend for the Davidson. For pretty much anywhere in the, the southeast, I, I have two rods I carry the most. I carry an eight-and-a-half-foot five weight. It's my general purpose all around. I can nymph fish, streamer fish, dry fly fish, whatever I need to do with it. So for the Davidson, the Tuckaseegee, Oconalufty, any of those little bit bigger rivers, that's my go-to setup. When I get off into the little small tributary stuff that's maybe 
8, 10, 12, 15 feet wide, then I'm going to drop down to like a 7.6 or a 7.9 three weight, and that's going to be my rod choice for all those smaller waters. All those plunge pool type stuff and things. Yes, correct. Yeah, where it's heavy brush and that kind of thing. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. Let me take a uh, another quick break here, and then let's uh, – I've got some questions coming in on the Internet. I want to try to address those and uh, as soon as we come back. So hang tight. We'll sure. be right back. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel Spring Creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dweller's Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. That's leesferryanglers.com or 800-962-9755. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Kevin Howell about the Great Smoky Mountains fly fishing. You'd like to ask Kevin a question? Just fill out that form on our homepage and send it on over, and we'll see what we can do here. Okay, Kevin, let's take some of these. Yeah, I think I kind of answered that one, Phil. Or, or Kevin answered. Uh, okay, uh, here's kind of a, a different question. Joe in Charlotte, North Carolina, wants to know, what was your most memorable trout? Where did you catch it, and what did you catch it on? <laughs> <laughs> You probably yeah, have to go through a lot of trout, right? <laughs> yeah, I have to think hard on that one. Um, one of my most memorable wasn't wasn't one that that I caught. I had a client with me who had been a great client for a number of years, and we were fishing on the Watauga River, and we'd floated all day and not had very much success at all. It was winter time, and uh, we got down almost where we were going to take out and he made a cast and indicator went down he set the hook and probably if that brown trout weighed an ounce it had to weigh 12 pounds and um, came to the top jumped three times on 6x tippet we chased the fish up the river down the river with the boat everything got him just almost in the net and the fish shook his head and when he did he raked the tippet across his tippet and broke the tippet and he was so tired, he was wobbling off back into the deep, and I was trying to grab him with the net. My client threw his rod one way, and I threw the rods the other way, and, or the net the other way, and there was a lot of explicities exchanged, but that's a fish that lives with me every day. <laughs> <laughs> the one that got away, huh? Uh, yeah. Yep. So close. The one that keeps uh, you going back. <laughs> yeah, geez. Well, it tells you they're in there, right? They're in there. Um, they're in there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. There. So another one from um, Phil. He says, since you're an experienced rod builder, can you please tell us about the rods you have built that you most enjoy fishing with? And are are you building primarily um, fly rods or only fly rods or other? No, I'm 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 building everything. Okay. I build everything from zero weights to offshore stand-up tuner rods. So. Um, oh wow! Uh, I got it. I got into rod building years ago. My father was a, a rod builder, and he grew up in a time and an era where rods were really hard to 
quality rods were really hard to get in, in this part of the country. And so he would buy componentry from other parts, have it shipped in and, and build rods himself. And, and I grew up under him and he and my uncle, you know, were world renowned for their rod building. And so I've just carried that tradition on. And today I'm, I'm using a lot of uh, Gary Loomis's blanks out of North Fork composites for my stuff I'm building and selling. Um, Use a lot of fiberglass stuff out of Epic fly rods, and then I have some other stuff I've helped design that I just build for friends and family and that kind of stuff. Uh, use a little bit of everybody's blanks, to be honest. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Phil, a follow-up question. He says, "At what age did your father and uncles get you started in fly tying and fishing, and did you always follow their advice or strike off into other fishing areas?" Pretty much always followed their advice. They were a second-generation fly fisherman. They grew up under the tutelage of my grandfather, which I spent a lot of time under his, his wing, too, but never got led astray from them. My, my father won the, the Bassmaster uh, Silver Cup Trail, which today would be the MLF version of the Bass Pro Tour or whatever. That's what he won back in 76. And, and um, so I grew up bass fishing just as much as trout fishing, and so I've got a passion for for fish in general. Doesn't matter what type. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter what type. Okay. And John Norcus want to know: Are you going to be at the Atlanta Fly Fishing Show? Yes, I will be at Atlanta. I am doing uh, two fly tying demos. I'm doing a couple of seminars and a couple of casting events as well. Okay, great. So. Uh, Anybody going to Atlanta? Look, uh, look, Kevin up there if you're down there. Yeah, cool. Okay, well, we caught up on a bunch of them here. There's a few more coming in, but uh, okay, let's see here. All right, let's get back to talking about uh, finishing up with the Davidson. Let's talk about, you mentioned uh, a few hatches coming off the water there. What are some of the flies that work well for you there? And if we can maybe reference some of them in your book, that'd be great. Sure, sure. Um, so generally in the in the Smoky Mountain region, we have hatches. That being said, a caddis hatch, you may only see 50 bugs on the water. It's enough to make the trout look up, enough to make the trout eat a caddis fly, but, you know, not so picky where, like if you're on the, the Missouri River and the Blue Wing Ollies are coming off that if yours isn't flapping its wings, there's no way it's going to get eaten. So the trout and the Davis and the Tuckasegee, all the surrounding streams are, are very um, opportunistic in nature. So with that being said, um, my flies that I prefer to fish or, or have the most success with either mimic two or three food sources or they're really just buggy looking, and for whatever reason, the trout don't like that. So they think they got to eat it and destroy it. So, you know, if I had to pick four or five favorite flies, definitely going to be a Bill's provider. That's in my book. It works super well on those days when it's uh, right after a rain. Um, water's got just a little bit of color to it, a little off color, a little higher than normal flow. I'm going to pick a Kevin Stonefly for our, our smaller stoneflies we have around in the area. Again, it's a, a go-to staple for myself and a lot of my guides. Another one, 
we'll do no, a before few flies. No, before yeah. you go on, those two flies, uh, ones, they're both kind of stonefly imitations, right? The bills provide Correct. as well? Correct, they are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, they're, yeah, they're both in the book. Tell us how you fish those. In, in the so I, I want both of them weighted as heavily as I can get them. Um, if they're not scrubbing and hanging on the bottom every once in a while, then they're not weighted heavily enough. Because free, uh, stoneflies aren't free swimmers that say, hey, I'm going to go out for a lap in the pool today. So um, they're bottom dwellers and, and hang out down there. So I want my, my fly down where the real the real insects are. So I want them weighted real heavy. I'm fishing them generally on 4X, maybe 5X tippet if, if the water is really clear, but but generally four or five X tippet on those two. Now, are you fishing one fly, two flies? Uh, I don't even know what the regulations are there. Uh, <laughs> well, the regulations are you can fish as many as three on a, a bite. In other words, they can't be three hooks on one fly, but you could have three flies in, in line with each other um, mm -hmm. or off the same lead in North Carolina. But I got broken from that years ago. Um, a number of big fish would eat one fly and run through and hang the other one and break you off. Um, I, I tend to fish one fly when I can catch fish with it or when I feel like I don't have to have that fly to get a little bitty size 20-something to the bottom. Okay. So who is Bill Provider? Or Bill? Who's Bill? Bill, <laughs> Bill, Bill is the fly. Who's Bill? Yeah, Bill was a, a good friend of my father's, uh, Bill Hale, out of South Carolina, and, and he used to tie flies and fish with my father and uncle all the time. And we were getting ready to go to Montana, and he gave my father a fly, and he said, "Here, this will always provide a few fish." And and uh, we got to fishing it out west, and came back and fished it even more here, and and boy, it just became such a, a go-to fly that that we named it the Bill's Provider since he told us it always provide a few fish, and it has. <laughs> yeah, it's got a lot of good things going. It's got that peacock curl body. It's got uh, some legs, rubber legs sticking out. It's got palmered uh, hackle. Uh, <laughs> what else could be a need, right? <laughs> it looks pretty just a, good. Just a, yeah. hot, just a little UV hot spot, and you're ready to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, okay. And then tell us who's Kevin, Kevin Stonefly. <laughs> Just joking. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so how'd you Kevin, come Kevin, to design that one? Yeah, that was um, one of the first flies that I ever truly liked designed or came up with on my own. Based off of the old Montana Stonefly, and I was trying mm -hmm. to make it a little little more realistic, so I switched the body to Peacock Curl and got a turkey tail for the back to make it more modeled looking and... and um, I tied up several and originally used goose biots for the legs instead of the rubber legs and then realized that you got a lot more action in life out of the rubber legs, so switched to those a couple of years after the original one came out in 85. Good, good. And then you were about to talk about another one right after that when I interrupted you. Sure. The other, one, the other one I talk about is uh, it's called a sheep fly. And my father, anytime he was asked, you know, what fly he should, he would use. He said, look, if I only had one fly to choose the rest of my life, it would be the sheep fly for trout fishing. Mm. And I would agree with that. I fished it literally at this point in, in my life. I fished it from north to south on the 
the Western Hemisphere, and I've caught trout everywhere with it. Argentina, North America, American West, Canada, you name it. Um, it looks like nothing in the water, but it looks like everything in the water. And when tied mm-hmm. correctly, it really traps a lot of air bubbles and, and lets off air bubbles and looks like a struggling insect that's alive in the water column. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of a hare's ear with a collar, you know, brown hackle collar, and uh, which makes it look even more buggy. But, yeah. Yeah, sure. that that rabbit. Uh, it looks like rabbit muskrat. Uh, you're using for the body, so very, very fuzzy, buggy kind of thing. Cool, cool. Yes. Now, do you fish that on the bottom as well, or is that more mid current kind of? Um, mid current to bottom. I tie it in several different weights. You know, one thing I learned early on is how important different weights in your flies can be, and so I. I have a thread system where if I open my box and look at it, that every fly tied with a green head has a, a body of this diameter lead wire and so many turns on it. And every fly with a an orange head has, you know, a, this diameter wire with so many turns. And that way I can open my box and exactly replicate how deep I was fishing or, or whatever and not have to sit there and guess and right. go, boy, I hope this is the same. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, good. Color coding those uh, those weights. Great. Any special techniques you use on the Davidson, particularly to, you know, presentations or rigs or anything? You know, we do a lot of a lot of high stick nymphing. Okay. I guess you'd call it euro nymphing today, but I don't know that it's truly euro nymphing as much as it's just high stick, the old high stick nymphing method. Uh, you can get closer to the fish and the, the heavy turbidity of the water. So we do a lot of high stick nymphing. The other presentation is a lot of times they'll get focused on real small midges or something. So we'll use a, you know, a 16, 18 caddis that we can see and run two feet of, of 6X or 7X tippet off of it to a 20, 22, 24 cream colored midge or whatever behind it. So we're using that front dry fly as an indicator for our our tea tiny dry fly that we can't see. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Now, do you do? Is it usually a, a dry dropper situation, or using indicators at all? If you're going to use indicators, you need to use a small one as you can get by with on the Davidson. Those fish are very well educated. They can tell you who manufactured the indicator and. <laughs> and whether they were right-handed or left-handed. Um, okay. But but uh, if you're going to use indicators, we use a lot of yarn, like the New Zealand Strike Indicator System. Um, right. That doesn't tend to freak the fish out as much as the thing on a bobber, the airlock going splat on top of them. Um, mm-hmm. And then our preferred method guiding is a dry dropper where we can use a big, bushy terrestrial in the summertime with a, a fly below it. You know, and we may run as much as a three-foot dropper off of that dry fly just to get it a little deeper or something in the water column. Right, right. Another uh, great. An- another question came in from Ben uh, Roche in Marathon, Florida, and he's referring to the Davidson. But I, obviously, from what you said, this isn't the river for him. But maybe you can steer him towards another river. He says his fishing buddy lost a leg to cancer and is restricted to, to floating. Are there any areas of the Davidson that are floatable? But 
Uh, you've already told us that's not the case. Is there another river in the area that's that's best suited for that? Sure, the Tuckasegee is a great float river. Um, there's a couple of different sections on it you can float. Same with the Catawba and same with the Watauga. Those are all float rivers that are within anywhere from 40 minutes to an hour and a half of the shop, depending on how far you want to go down some of them. Um, okay. That are all okay. floatable and have guides or drift boats working working on those rivers. Working on those rivers. Okay, good. Well, since you, you brought up the Tuckasegee, uh, let's, uh, let's talk about that. Where is that in relationship to your shop? That's west of us, about 45 minutes in the town of Waynesville. Not Waynesville, sorry, uh, Cullowee on the map. You can find Cullowee. And um, so you've got several sections through there you can float and several sections that you can wade fish as well. It is a tailwater, so you do have to be, if you're wading, you have to be cognizant of the, the dam release. If they just run one unit, you're fine. If they run two or more units, then um, not a safe place to be waiting. Do they have any kind of a warning system for that? Or? They, well, they've got a posted schedule. You can go to uh, Duke Energy slash water release, water levels, and you're looking at the Nantahala area, and you'll find Tuckasegee River on there. And... Um, both the East Fork and the West Fork of the Tuckasegee. And if they're running the West Fork, you're fine to wait it. If they're running the East Fork, you don't want to wait it. Or if they're running both, you definitely don't want to wait it. Okay. Okay. What is it that you like about that fishery? Well, part of it, um, through the from Cullowee downstream to Dillsboro is part of the North Carolina Delayed Harvest streams, and they stock that so heavily that you could literally walk across it in May and not get your feet on the bottom because you're standing on trout. So it's a very target-rich environment. Um, but then it has a lot of carryover fish as well. And then from Dillsboro downstream, you have a lot of uh, wilder wild fish that, Maybe not as many of them, but tend to be a, a larger size down through the gorge and, and on down toward the town of Bryson City. Okay. What is the terrain, the topography like there compared to the Davidson? Um, if you've got, uh, even within generating water, if you've got any type of a drift boat and any type of rowing skills, you're good to go down it. Um, it's a pretty gentle old soul. A lot of pools with little shoals in between. Some of the shoals you have to be on the right line or you'll have to get out and push. But, um, you know, for the most part, it, it's a fairly easy river to, to wade and or to float. How long is the fishable section? Um, well, you've got about uh, seven, eight miles of blade to harvest, but above that you've got probably 20 miles of general regulation trout water, and you've probably got 15 miles below the thing. So I don't know. All total, you probably got about 50 miles of river you can fish. Oh, wow. Well, and with the floatable stretches, how long the floats are those? Are those full-day floats? Um, yeah, there are, they're going to be full-day floats, but if they're generating a lot of water and you – 
you just fish the good stuff, you can be through it in four hours. If you take your time and fish everything, it's going to take you eight hours. Okay. Do you generally do most of your fishing from the boat, considering the water flows, or are you getting out and waiting? Most of the spring fishing is done from a boat because you have all those spring rains and the reservoirs are full, so they're they're running water, generating water, and making electricity. And then once you get to the fall, the waters are low, you know, naturally, and there's not as much water in the reservoir, so a lot of the fall fishing is waiting. Okay, okay. Let me take another quick break here, and when we come back, we'll talk more about the Tuska CG River and uh, talk about some flies that will probably work there as well. So hang tight, and we'll be right back. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. FFI efforts include being a strong advocate for removing dams on the Snake River, preserving water quality through their science on the fly program, and taking action to conserve the declining populations of Atlantic striped bass. FFI serves as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish to preserve and to and promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website, at flyfishersinternational.org. That's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Kevin Howell about the Great Smoky Mountains fly fishing. If you'd like to ask Kevin a question, go to our homepage, fill out the form, send it in. We'll see if we can get it answered. Okay, Kevin. So more about the Tusca CG. What fish species are there? Are there rainbows and browns as well? Is that what we're looking at? Sure, you'll have rainbows, browns, and brook trout. The brook are a northern strain that, that our wildlife commission stocks from time to time, but they are in there. And then you'll also catch smallmouth bass all the way up to the town of Colowee. Of course, the further you are down the river toward Fontana Reservoir, the more smallmouth you catch, but um, you will find, you will bump into them all the way up to Colowee, which is probably 30, 35 miles upriver of the lake. So if I want to come and say, Kevin, let's go smallmouth fishing, is are you going to take me to the Tuska CG or, or some other water? No, I'm, I'm going to take you. If you solely want to just catch smallmouth, we're going to go to the French Broad or or the Pigeon River system or okay. um, the Nolichucky River system, which are, are predominantly 90% smallmouth in places. Okay, okay. So... Um, so this fishery is primarily a trout fishery, and that's primarily a trout fishery with with a few few smallmouth mixed in just to to have fun. <laughs> to have fun. Do you catch those by you know accident at times? Is it? Uh... Uh, you catch them by accident, but after after guiding it for a number of years, most of the guys know exactly where the smallmouth is going to be on what type of structure, and you know you can. You can ask your client, hey, do you want to catch a smallmouth? Or you can just surprise them and say, hey, throw it right over there and, <laughs> and watch the Right radio. over there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
bring it in three feet, and there's there, he'll be sitting right there. Yeah. Huh? yeah. Uh, great. What? Uh, why would I? You know, what would make me want to fish the Davidson over the Tuscaloosa uh, or vice versa? Generally, the Davidson is known for its large trout. It's held the state record three times. Twice was my uncle and once was my father. Uh, they had a little bit of recoil on there. But um, <laughs> but it has held the state record three times, and it's known for large brown trouts. A lot of people fish the Davidson in, in search for the large browns. Okay. And, and then why would we go to the Tuskegee? Uh, the Tuskegee, you're going to catch a lot more fish than you are in the Davidson, number-wise. But you're not going to have – you're going to catch some big browns in there and, and maybe even a bigger rainbow, but there's not the numbers of the big fish in there that there are in, in the Davidson. Okay, okay. Let's talk about flies and fishing methods for the Tuskegee. Can you tell us about some flies out of your book that uh, are going to work well there? Sure. So I'm I'm going to do a lot more streamer fishing over there, so I'd, I'd be sure that I had like a strawberry blonde. Wooly Booger does really good over there. Swamp Buster do really good over there. Hey, describe the, the strawberry blonde for us. So the strawberry blonde has a, a ginger brown and cream-colored tail that's all blended together out of marabou. And then it's got a yellow and brown variegated chenille body with a medium ginger, medium barred ginger hackle over it for its, its hackle and a red, a metallic red tungsten bead so to help get it down. I've got a little bit of flash and just a different color woolly booger that those fish don't see very often. Works really well. Okay, okay. And so you're going to fish that, that as a streamer. What was the uh, woolly booger you said? Good old standard, right? Just good old standard woolly booger works, works really well over there. Okay, both streamers. Yeah, and do you... I, Go ahead. Are you fishing those streamers up against the bank? How how do through poles? Yeah, I normally fish those. Yeah, I'm going to fish them boat in the middle up against the bank, or or waiting in the middle and up against the bank and coming out. And in the I'm going to concentrate on any when you look when you wade the river or you float down the river, you can look and you'll see a the bottom, and then you'll see a green hole where it's a little bit deeper and. Any of those depressions are where all those fish are going to be hiding. Okay. Okay. And what about other flies that you would recommend? Non-streamer. So non-streamer, I would do a lot of um, saw tackles. There's a huge caddis population in that river, and you can either swing them or fish them dead-drifted as a nymph, whether it's a saw tackle pheasant tail or a peacock pheasant tail, uh, peacock saw tackle. Sorry, not a peacock pheasant tail, but peacock soft tackle, pheasant tail soft tackle, both work wonderful in there for the the caddis nymphs. And um, what about any other type of nymphs? Um, yeah, any of your stonefly nymphs, the Kevin Stone, the Bills Provider, those will all work in there well. Also, 
And then we do a lot of dry fly fishing over there too with caddis like the Fromisky's foam fluttering caddis, which is in the in the book that works really well over there. Okay. Which I want to look that one up so we can talk about that one. What was it again? Framinsky's? Framinsky's foam fluttering caddis. Hmm. Can't find it <laughs> in your book. <laughs> he, he should be uh, in there somewhere. Okay. Well, I won't. I won't waste any time looking for it here. Let's um, uh, let me check here real quick and see what we've got. If there's any questions around that. Yeah. Oh, here's one. Rick Parrish in uh, North Carolina. What would be your favorite non-known secret fly that's in the new book for use in our smoky streams that you or your family didn't make famous? <laughs> <laughs> um, non-known. Um, probably the uh, the Smoky Mountain candy, um, one of Walter Babb's patterns. It'd be a tie between that and a Tennessee wolf, which is an old traditional southern pattern that they both get overlooked these days. But man, are they they really effective? Is that uh, Smoky Mountain candy more for the uh, sulfur hatches? It looks. It, it that's or is what just a tractor. Be, yeah, it looks to be more for the sulfur hatches, but it fishes year round just as a general attractor. Okay. Any fly in the south, well, not south, any fly in, in this Smoky Mountain region, you'll notice a lot of old history flies have yellow in them. That's a, a tribute to how well that color works here. Year round. Okay, okay. Now, what about people that are interested in going into the park to fish? Is that park fishing more small streams in general or... How would you describe the fishing in the park? No, the I mean, there. I want to get this right. I want to say there's uh, right at a thousand miles of fishable stream or something inside the park, and you've got huge rivers, the Little River on the Tennessee side. You've got the Oconaluftee on the North Carolina side. You've got Hazel Creek and Deep Creek. Both, all those are huge drainages and big water. But then a lot of the others you know, or Kephart Prong and, you know, I'm trying to think here, uh, Bradley Creek. You got a, a ton of those smaller streams. So I'd say it's probably 30% large rivers and 70% smaller water. Okay. Okay. Now, do you and your guides guide up there? We do. We do guide that far away. You know, we only do full-day trips over there because it is an hour-and-a-half drive for us to get there. And to get back, so we're only doing full day trips over there instead of, you know, an option of a full or a half. But we do guide over there, and some of my guides grew up, you know, right there in Brighton City on the edge of the park and have fished it all their lives as well as I fished it all of mine. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Just about everybody on my staff has a pretty deep knowledge and understanding of the park. Bill Burden in Apex, North Carolina, wrote, and he says, uh, Kevin, for the Smoky Mountains, do you like fishing on the North Carolina or the Tennessee side of the park? What are your top three streams in the park to fish, and what's your favorite time of year to fish the park? So you probably mentioned those top three just now, I suppose. But Well, my, my top three, definitely the Oconaluftee. 
definitely the Little River on the Tennessee side, and then Abrams Creek. Um, those would probably be my three favorite streams. What was the first and one again? The O'Connell Lefty. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. And the thing, if somebody's going in to fish Abrams Creek, they need to realize that there are two horseshoe bends on that. You have to walk in there, and, and once you're committed to go around one of those horseshoe bends, you are committed to go around that bend. And the big bend takes about eight hours to go all the way around. So, wow. Um, don't bite off more than you can chew and end up spending the night under the laurels with the rattlesnakes and the black bears. <laughs> oh, God. You make it sound so inviting, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> hey, they're, they're out there just looking for a little fun and relaxation, same as we are. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. I know. We got our share around here. That and uh, mountain lion uh, seem to be killing a lot of deer lately around my place. So. Um, yeah, but see, I'm... Unlike the mountain lions, our bears, they're just as scared of you as they, as you are them. It's just uh, who's scared yeah. who first. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good. good. Um, we have a question from Jim in Cincinnati. He says, fishing the plunge pools in the Smokies, those little mini waterfalls have plagued me to the point to where sometimes I'll just walk by and skip it. <laughs> How do you fish these? And what size leader do you use for these small mountain streams? So if I'm fishing the, the small streams, I'm generally fishing a seven and a half foot leader because you are it's a small stream, you're up close and personal and yeah, the longer leader the more rhododendron you're gonna get hung in. So I like that little seven six, seven nine length rod with a seven and a half foot leader, tapered to generally about five X. Those fish are pretty opportunistic and um I'll fish a Dry fly, 90% of the time, you know, that Tennessee wolf, uh, something like that, and try and draw those fish out of that plunge pool. And then the other thing I do, if I'm not being successful with that, is I will drop a green inchworm pattern. doesn't matter if it's a furry foam inchworm or a San Juan style, but as long as it's a fluorescent chartreuse green, I will drop that about a foot off of my dry fly and that really tends to work real well in those plunge pools. Anytime you get a rain in the summertime it knocks those green inchworms out of the out of the trees and down into those plunge pools. Yeah, I notice you have that one in your book too, an inchworm pattern. Yeah, chartreuse like you said. And you also mentioned mop flies and green weenies are yes. ones that will work for that too, huh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those always uh, are tough to to fish. I know I've had my struggles with those as well. Phil and uh, Phil Burden in Apex, North Carolina, also asked if you could only have five to six flies in your fly box to fish the Great Smoky Mountains, Tennessee side, in late April through early May. Uh, what what would your pick be? <laughs> he's boy, he's um, dialing in there, isn't he? <laughs> he is. I'm definitely going to have a sheep fly that time of year. It works year-round, but, boy, it really shines that time of year. I'm going to have a green inchworm pattern. I'm going to have a yellow mayfly, whether it's a, a true yellow may or a yellow hammer or some type of a, a yellow sulfur dry fly pattern in my box. Also going to have a either um 
like a patch rubber leg or a girdle bug or that bill's provider, those all three could be interchanged with one another. But some type of a bigger water fly for, you know, if it's rained or something that afternoon. Right. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Um, I've got some that, um, oh, yeah. One other question. Ken Wade, Gatlinburg, Tennessee, says, have you fished the horseshoe on Abrams Creek, Tennessee? What did you use there, and what season of the year did you go? So I've fished the horseshoe several times. Generally, in the springtime, I fish a lot of nymphs. Sheep fly again is going to be one of my go-tos there. Same with the, the bills provider. Um, and then a new fly called a trip saver. was well, not new, but it's a more recent pattern. But a, a trip saver works real well. And then the last time I was in there was in the fall, and we caught all of our fish on an October caddis on dry flies all day long. So just got to change your flies with the season and the water flows. But but I do like fishing the horseshoe for sure. Is that just a part of a special place on Abrams Creek? Or? Well, like I said earlier, it makes a big a big horseshoe, and it takes you eight hours to go. Oh, All that's the, the same place. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and the reason that you, if you get committed, is because it's shorter to go one way than the other than coming back, or what? Well, you either have to, you either have to backtrack all the way around to where you started, but there's no way to walk out over the ridge. There's a huge ridge oh. that runs down that makes the horseshoe, so you can't get okay. out over that ridge. You gotta. Okay, gotcha. All the way around. <laughs> okay, gotcha, gotcha. Well, you just mentioned another fly that's in your book, uh, Hal's Trip Saver. Why don't you describe that fly and how you use, you know, how you fish that fly? Because it's very interesting looking. <laughs> um, that fly came out of my my tournament fishing years. Uh, I fished the fly fishing masters for a number of years and and won it and placed second and third three of those times, but it um, has rubber legs front and back, uh, almost like the Bills Provider would with a, I use a Whitlock Red Fox Squirrel, the thorax dubbing for the back, the gray color, and um, wrap a, a piece of Mylar tinsel through that, pearlescent tinsel through that to give it a little flash, and then have a soft tackle and a little UV hot spot at the front of it and a tungsten bead. And the beauty of it was I can break the legs off if I want less motion, leave the legs on. And I was trying to find a fly that whoever fished in front of me hadn't beat them in the head with. So just trying to create a little something different there. And, and um, it worked really well. And was my secret fly until my good buddy Curtis Flynn sold me out on national television. Um, <laughs> I said, hey, let's see that fly you you've out. been using. And, and uh, why don't you tell us about it? And I'm trying to, you know, kick him in the knees. They sh- no, not today, Curtis. <laughs> but, uh, uh, what are friends so for, huh? That, that, that's a whole different interview. So, uh, but... It, yeah. it looks a little bit like a caddis, a little bit like a little micro stone fly, and basically it can be converted to non-rubber legs by just popping them off or leaving them on there, depending on what mood the fish are in. 
Do you fish that deep, mid-water column? Any uh, special fish that works better? A, I fish it as a dropper um, the majority of the time. Under a, a two feet, two and a half feet underneath a, a terrestrial works really well. The other way I fish it is as a double nymph rig. I'll put put it behind a bigger nymph, and they tend to take that when they ignore the big nymphs. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, we're out of time, unfortunately, so we got to wrap things up here. But Kevin, stick with me because we're going to be giving away your book, and I'm going to need you to help okay. me. Okay getting the right answer to my question. But uh, we're also going to be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, a one-year membership to uh, Trout Unlimited. And like I said, a copy of, of your latest book, uh, Favorite Flies for the Great Smoky Mountains, 50 Essential Patterns from Local Experts, courtesy of Stackpole Books. So hang tight here, and we'll be right back, and we'll be giving away those prizes. Do you travel to fish? Medical and security emergencies happen. When they do, you can rely on Global Rescue, the world's leading membership organization, providing integrated medical, security, travel risk, and crisis response services to travelers worldwide. Without a Global Rescue membership, an emergency evacuation could cost you more than $100,000. That's why over 1 million members trust Global Rescue to get them home when the worst happens. Don't travel without Global Rescue. Memberships start at just $129. Learn more about Global Rescue's program. Just click on the Global Rescue icon in the footer of Ask About Fly Fishing, or uh, we also have a icon in the right column on our homepage. So that will take you straight to their site, and they'll help you out there. Uh, just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage and uh, under the section under tonight's show that says, What Did You Think of the Show? Just Click on that link, leave your comments, and we really appreciate it. Okay, so we're going to do our drawings now. Uh, the winners for the drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for the, uh, tonight's show, it's too late now, but uh, make sure you do so for our next show uh, so you don't miss out on a chance to win some of these great prizes. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. Uh, to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. So our winner for that is, uh, let me get my database going here, and winner for that is going to be Stephen DeBlois. Uh, Stephen DeBlois. So, Stephen, congratulations. It looks like Stephen's in North Carolina. Oh, cool, cool. So, um, and then... Let's see here. For the um, that's for the Fly Fishing International membership, and for Trout Unlimited. Let's see here who we've got going. Give me a second here. Uh, it's a second for this to go out and do its random selection here. And. No, we can't have Stephen win two things. So <laughs> his name come back again. Uh, and uh, looks like we have uh, Richard Scalone or Scaloni uh, in Pennsylvania. So, um, uh, Richard, you just won yourself a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. So congratulations on that. All right. Now, so the question, this is going to be an odd question. And... Um, 
You don't need to give me the names, just the relationships of Kevin's relatives. Two of them won. Uh, tell me what they they won, Kevin. Uh, the, the record was it brown trout? Record brown trout. State yeah, record brown so, trout. Yeah. So two of his relatives won the uh, the state record brown trout. So what were those two rela- uh, relatives? Son. Brother, uh, daughter, father, grandfather, what were the two that won? Or not won, but achieved <laughs> the, the state record, got the state record, however we want to say it. Yeah, so uh, that would be a tough one, I think, Kevin. I think so. Okay, the first one says dad and uncle. Is that correct? That is correct. It is. Oh, okay. Uh, first one out of shoots, Mark uh, Dunda or D- Dunda. Yeah, Austin, Texas. He's a dad and uncle record round trout. Yeah. Well, that I thought it was going to be harder than that. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations, Mark. <laughs> yeah, he was listening. Yeah. So, Mark, in your in the same place that you answered the question. Just give me your address so that we can get Stackpole to, to ship out you the Kevin's book. Favorite flies for the Great Smoky Mountains. So congrats, and uh, send that over to me, and we'll get that shipped off to you. All right. Well, Kevin, really uh, appreciate you being on the show with us tonight. It was a pleasure to talk to you. I know it's getting late out east there, so we'll let you go here. But uh, thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you, Roger, and enjoy being on the show. Well, good, good. Good to have you. Hopefully you've all found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top-line menu. Uh, In the archive, you'll find all of our past shows, over 365 shows now, which you can search by keyword, keyword phrase, like trout, tarpon, Madison River, and so forth. Just go ahead, explore. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by what you discover. Our next broadcast will be on January 18th, that's 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'm going to interview uh, Robert Streeter. And our topic for the show will be the greats of the Adirondack fly fishing. Rob has a great love of fly fishing and its history. He has collected and assembled the life stories of some of the great fly fishers that fished the Adirondack Mountains, including Ray Bergman, Lee Wolf, Perry Ellers, and others. So join us and learn about the history of fly fishing in the Adirondacks and the people who fished its esteemed waters. Be sure to add this upcoming show to your calendar. Just click on the Add to Calendar button just below Rob's picture on our homepage. And we'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, Stackpole Books, Muskie Town, Global Rescue, and Lee's Ferry Anglers for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.